Welcome, listeners, to www.ironradio.org, the website and podcast for all things strength sports and sports nutrition. With your hosts, Lonnie Lowry. Remember, Phil is like a gnarled old oak tree held together with scar tissue and bone spurs. Rob Fortney. And I'm telling you, the pain that I would suffer was beyond excruciating. And Phil Stevens. Do it, Rob. You'll kill all those nerves. Thanks for listening. Welcome, Iron Radio listeners. This is Lonnie Lowry. I'm an exercise physiologist, and I'm a nutritionist, and I'm a former competitive bodybuilder. My name is Dr. Mike T. Nelson. I'm the owner of Extreme Human Performance, faculty member at the Kerrig Institute, and normally teach also for Broadview, a bunch of other stuff too. Right on. Phil, um, we're actually recording this on a different time. Phil was uh, out with, I think, some youth powerlifters at an event, uh, and I was traveling too. It was just sort of a big mess. So we do have a bunch of news backing up on us, though. So Dr. Nelson and I are going to address the news and then we're going to the topic of the day if you want to stick around for it let me just tell you what that is now we're going to talk about fat but still fit or maybe more importantly the the importance of muscle mass uh so some of this stuff is in the news that's how we sort of came to the topic but let's start with this strength and muscle sport news this first one is just some interesting facts this is from the food insider journal i noticed it says, fats are not only essential for good health, they also make key contributions to the physical comp- composition of a vast range of food products. Boy, we saw that in Vegas, right? They're very interested in manipulating fats oh, for, yeah. for the physical qualities. Um, the latest issue of Food Insider Journal reveals a, f- a few things. One, tropical oils such as coconut and palm are being classified as solid fats rather than oils now. Huh. Hmm. I hadn't heard that, but... Interesting, and again, I haven't dug into this uh, any further, but it says in the U.S., most added oils are consumed in salad dressings, mayo, and snack chips. Hmm. Snack chips doesn't surprise me. Yeah. Uh, Do that many people eat mayo? Maybe they do. I guess. I don't like it, but... Uh, (laughs) I'm not a huge fan. I guess just on stuff like Big Macs and a lot of fast food sandwiches, I think it's part of the goop. That's probably true. Yeah. Snack chips, I'm sure. And then it says in 2016, 88% of U.S. households reported using butter, 50% using olive oil, 32% other vegetable oils, and 24% specifically canola oil. Hmm. Hmm. I wonder what that would be like several years ago. Yeah, I actually tell students one of the best things you can do is get the generic-looking quote-unquote vegetable oil out of your cupboards and get some olive oh, oil yeah. in there. You know that because it's always that what like uh, corn oil, safflower yep. oil. It's just omega six heavy, sort of pro-inflammatory stuff. You know, and uh, listeners, if you're not familiar, canola is uh, a close second to olive oil for a source of monounsaturates. Uh, I do like some of those phenols and all the other healthy aspects of olive oil, too. So it's one of the best things. And um, I don't know, Mike, how you do this. Sometimes I'll have extra virgin olive oil, the greener, more pungent stuff, when I want that taste. And then sometimes I'll just get the cheaper olive oil, like at a a discount grocer, uh, that's a little bit less aromatic and greenish, you know, and rich. Because actually, sometimes I want to fry something that doesn't taste like olives, if that makes any sense. Uh, yeah, I just use coconut oil if I'm 
doing anything with a little bit more heat, maybe a little butter, uh, sometimes ghee, that kind of thing. Um, there's some debate about, I think, cheaper olive oil. Is it actually olive oil or is it something else that's put in there? And I don't know the answer to that. I haven't had time to look into it all that much. But I have noticed that there sometimes is a pretty big price difference. And maybe there's that much difference in grades of olive oil. But at some point, when something gets so cheap, I start to wonder what's going on. <laughs> yeah, I I once knew about the processing of olive oil. It's the kind of thing, you know, you, you forget yeah, yeah. more than a beginner even knows, I think. And I can't remember specifically. What, what I seem to remember, though, is that the EVOO is not necessarily that different nutritionally. Um, but, yeah, I'd have to look into that, too. Um, I, I'm just going to yeah. have to take it for what it is if the label says it's it's olive oil, yeah. you know, uh, and that it's mostly mono and saturate. And, you know, you can test that, folks, if you're interested. Stick the olive oil in your fridge. If your fridge is cold enough, it will start to yeah. solidify because it's a mono unsaturate. If it's really an omega-6 polyunsaturate, like corn oil, safflower, cottonseed oil, uh, even soybean oil, it's not going to start to solidify in a very cold fridge. So... There you go, the poor man's olive oil test. There you go, yep, poor man's olive oil chemistry. It's a good book a long time ago called Fats That Heal and Fats That Kill from Udo Erasmus. Yes, I remember. Um, was, it's an older book now, but um, that's kind of one of the first times I actually got into all the different processing of the different oils and the history of everything. And if people are looking for more information, I, I still recommend that book because it's the best one I've ever found of trying to explain the chemistry in a way you can probably understand it and the history of it without mm -hmm. going too far over the edge. Right on. Hey, you know, when you talk about the physical qualities of fats, uh, we had, well, we have olive oil, of course, and also coconut oil in my cupboards, and our AC broke this summer. And for a period of about a week, the house was probably 80 degrees inside you know we had fans going and windows open and we bought a, a portable ac unit and all this stuff but uh, aside from the lowry family drama <laughs> the the uh coconut oil which is normally solid right at room temperature know. was liquid i'm like hun look at the look at the coconut oil it was like a golden completely you know melted it, it was like a oil in the jar and then you kind of get the idea that, again, yeah, some of these fats, the monounsaturates or the short-chain saturated fats like uh, coconut oil, they're right on the edge of being a fat versus an oil. So it's you can start yeah, to get the like, idea, you know, the physical yeah. qualities. For manufacturing and a lot of times for food stuff, they'll use coconut oil a lot because, well, now it's a little bit more inexpensive. But it also has a very interesting mouthfeel because of the way it'll kind of melt, right? So if anyone's taken solid coconut oil and just kind of stick it in your mouth that's enough of a change in temperature that it will kind of melt just from that slight change right not unlike chocolate right the melting point is right, right about 37 yep. degrees c yeah body temp yep neat okay <laughs> geeky stuff this morning <laughs> uh this next one just this is sort of just a brief brief announcement i got this through lab roots uh one of their trending things from um carmen leach uh, FDA warns about contaminated supplements. Now, this caught my attention because I thought, well, here we go, right? Because the FDA mm -hmm. seems very irritated that they can't regulate supplement dietary supplements more tightly than they do, you know. And a lot of people will argue, oh, it's a power grab for the FDA to want to do that. They've tried to regulate vitamins in the past and all kinds of things and fish oils and 
Uh, the flip side is you got very conservative groups slamming the FDA for not being harsh enough. So, but anyway, it caught my attention. Here's the news blurb. Dietary supplements are popular in the United States. The NIH has estimated that a third of the U.S. population uses some form of supplement. Mm. Uh, the FDA is now warning consumers about dietary supplements and drugs made by Pharmatech of Davie, Florida. And I think this has happened before, but bear with me. Um, apparently, they could be contaminated with the bacterium Burkholderia cepacia. The products included in the FDA's warning uh, include liquid uh, docusate sodium drugs, which are stool softeners. Other products in the warning are dietary supplements, such as liquid vitamin D drops and liquid multivitamins mm. for kids. Um, apparently, the bacterium can cause a range of symptoms from respiratory infection to really no illness at all. Actually, it's not automatically, but I think it's it's freaking out the FDA. And in the past, even the CDC has gotten involved because there, there can be outbreaks. You can actually spread this bacteria through direct contact. Oh. So when they trace it back to the, the source, in this case to uh, Pharmatech of Davie, Florida, they sort of freak out and... You know, they don't want to have an outbreak, multi-state outbreak sort of thing. But I will point people to, again, it's to it, labroots.com, uh, article, article written by Carmen Leach. So if you're taking liquid multis from that particular com company, Pharmatech, um, look, look into it. Look into it more carefully. Uh, next. This next one... Uh, was sent to me by my wife. Now, this is a little bit beyond the scope of Iron Radio, but Mike, you and I have an interest in, in uh, nootropics and things like that, yeah. and dietary supplements and that sort of thing. And I think a lot of people who aren't familiar with the idea of cognition enhancement, I mean, if you're interested in physique enhancement, I think a lot of those same people are interested in self-actualizing in all kinds of ways, you know, becoming the best they can be. And also mentally, um, JAMA. Uh, one of their journals, JAMA Psychiatry, uh, was just promoting a new article, Cognition Enhancing Drugs, What Are They? Uh, interesting stuff that just came out about nootropics. I, I'm not going to cover it too much, but apparently there was a, a chess study, and it revived the debate over cognition-enhancing meds. Hmm. So, um, yeah, over the years I've been... I used to read about them quite a bit. I have as much lately. I guess I'm focusing more on the uh, cognition-enhancing nutrients, maybe, than I am the, the meds. But um, there's a, there was a bunch out there. Not even sure how to pronounce uh, this drug, but piracetam, I think, was one. Uh, there was yeah, a, paracetam. Or paracetam, okay. Yeah, different aniracetams or different, different types of racetams. That's kind of one of the more popular ones that people have uh, assumed are effective. How do those work, and Mike? Some aren't. Like, what's the mechanism by which they enhance cognition? Do you know? Uh, I'm not entirely sure. I mean, from what I read on some of the earlier stuff on paracetam, there's some theories about increasing uh, cell membrane potentials, maybe making it easier to kind of pass signals from one to the next. Mm -hmm. um, I'm not really sure of the exact mechanism, to be honest. I've notice kind of anecdotally with any real nootropics that some people with certain compounds respond pretty good other people eh, didn't really do anything for them either um, so there seems to be a lot of individual variability i've noticed more with them than anything else mm -hmm. and usually you give 
people caffeine and it's a pretty known response, but you can figure out the people who kind of responded and didn't by, you know, maybe looking at their genetics or their history of how much caffeine they use. I think with nootropics, we're just trying to figure that out. I know a couple of companies are working on different types of tests. You can kind of quantify it yourself. Um, one of them's looking at, is there some type of maybe questionnaire or something that we can give you to try to determine which one you may respond better to? Mm-hmm. Um, I'm one of the things on my list, which I haven't done yet is to do more of quantified testing with it. There's a computer program that'll allow you to do different things like a Stroop test yeah. and different sort yeah. of cognitive type tests. We used to um, use those, the Stroop words tests. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Listeners, if you're not familiar, like one version, at least one aspect of it is they'll, they'll flash, the spelled out colors like B L U E. And then sometimes you're supposed to read the word. Sometimes you're supposed to uh, say whatever color it is. Like if the text of B L U E is actually green text on the screen, you're supposed to say green, you know, if if they're asking for the color, not the word. And then the whole idea is everybody can get this right, but how quickly can you respond? Right. If you're being asked, what are, what's the color of the text versus what does the word say what does it read you get the idea yeah those stroop words tests we used to do that with uh elderly people and look at the cognitive mm-hmm. effects of exercise right on the elderly but anyway yeah and the, it's one of those tests where you describe it to someone and you go ah it's gonna be pretty easy and then you do it as a time thing you're like oh, uh, uh, oh yep. dang it it's harder than you think it's gonna, yeah they can <laughs> count the number be. of mistakes and um the reason I ask about the mechanism, of course, is because there's some of the things that you'll hear, for example, about uh, ginkgo, uh, it might mm-hmm. help. I, my understanding is it's probably going to help the elderly more because it, part of its mechanism of action is cerebral blood flow. Yeah. And, and with younger people, that's not an issue. So you don't see some of the memory or cognition tests like those Stroop word tests actually really look like they're that beneficial, at least not a consensus in the literature with the young folks. Whereas with the older people, you're sort of correcting a deficiency, and that you know that that's different. But um, I don't know. And then people, of course, will talk about like uh, omega three fats, and you know, fish is brain food, and that sort of thing. Like I said, I haven't looked at this stuff for uh, quite a long time. It is interesting, though, that a lot of the anti-inflammatory and generally physically healthy supplements might also help with you know your uh, your brain, your memory, and your thinking and whatnot. Yeah, it's definitely an area that's growing pretty fast. I mean, I think now it's becoming almost, I don't want to say quite mainstream, but definitely a lot more mainstream than even a couple of years ago. Um, and I mean, even just some of the students I talk to, it's relatively common. Even different drugs are used for that now and are pretty easy to get, which I don't know. That really kind of freaks me out. <laughs> Yeah, she's using Adderall now, and I'm like, oh, geez. oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> we used to call that what it is, you know, back when I was little, like, you know, in the '70s or whatever. I mean, you could say Adderall, and it sounds sort of benign, but you know, right. am- amphetamine sounds a little bit scarier. But let's call yeah. it kind of what it is here. That's what you it know, is. Speed. <laughs> um, yeah, and like you said, I mean, you know, caffeine and that sort of stuff. I'm actually, I want to start looking into a few. Um, online test for cognition and what whatnot too, because there's some neat things that I'm playing with in that regard as far as research goes. So, anyway, yeah, I just thought I would give everybody a shot. If you're interested in nootropics, things that enhance memory, 
focus, concentration, just thinking, arguably even intelligence, depending on how you define that. Yeah, JAMA psychiatry. Um, it's spanking new stuff here that they're they're uh, promoting. I think. Um, on Twitter and a couple other sources, but it's because of a new chess study. And again, it revives the debate over some of these cognition enhancing drugs by Jeff Lyon, published in uh, Journal of American Medical Association online, August 16th. So hmm. um, that's pretty cool to see that actually in JAMA, actually. Yeah. Uh, and, and you know, they're addressing, I think, the debate over it. You know, like, is it, it how possible is it to actually take a pill and become smarter? Wow. You know, I mean, that's really putting it in lay terms, I guess, but. Yeah. Okay. Uh, our last little uh, tidbit of news is going to set up our topic of the day. This is also from Lab Roots uh, by Zhuan Pham, or uh, how I don't know how you would pronounce X U A N. Um, mm. Jean Pham. Uh, anyway. Yeah. Sounds good to me. <laughs> <laughs> Fat but fit. Uh, still at risk for heart disease is what it's called. And again, this is going to set up our topic about body fatness versus muscle mass. You know, can you be fat but fit? Because I can tell mm -hmm. you, um, playing around on Instagram lately, I see quite a few powerlifters posting pictures of themselves, and they they meet most definitions of obese, right? Now they carry a ton of muscle mass too, though. You know, and it, again, it made me think of that that game Phil plays with his wife and his friends, yeah. fat or powerlifter. You know, yeah. uh, but anyway. According to a new study, being quote-unquote fat but fit is still far from reality. In fact, those who are overweight or obese risk, risk up to 28% increase in coronary heart disease risk. Uh, in recent years, the term fat but fit has been adopted by the general public to describe those who seem metabolically healthy despite carrying extra weight. And when they say metabolically healthy, they're talking about things like uh, your serum triglycerides, right? Your blood fats, um, low HDL or the you know high density lipo lipoprotein cholesterol, the good cholesterol, uh, high blood pressure, uh, having to use diabetes meds, uh, high waist circumference. There's a lot of things that are sort of tied into metabolism quite strongly. It says uh, studies have found evidence to the contrary of this whole fat but fit. Thing that a lot of uh, people in the gen pop are saying in the current study led by researchers from Imperial College of London there was confirmation that fat but fit may be a myth they followed mm. 17,640 people over 12 years now when I hear that a lot of people might say "Ooh, wow you know large subject size usually that's that to me it's like here comes the correlational data right like yeah. they're gonna be well, trying to study yeah they're just making observations. They're not directly intervening. It's probably not causal. Uh, and indeed, they used body mass index as their mm. marker of obesity. Now, in the gen pop, it's, you know, it's pretty fair if you have a very high weight for height, right, and your BMI is over 30, it's almost certainly not because you're jacked with lots of muscle mass, right? Yeah. I mean, anybody on the Mr. Olympia stage, I'm sure their body mass indexes hover over 30, and, oh, yeah, way over. Yeah, And they, you know, they have almost no body fat. But, of course, there's drugs involved at that stage. And honestly, even in collegiate sport or in natural bodybuilding and that sort of stuff where the people are really quite lean when they compete, they might carry some extra body fat in the offseason. But uh, I myself had a body mass index of 30, 31 for a long time. And 
you know, yeah, that's a mix of fat and lean, but I was never obese from a purely adipose tissue perspective. You know, I think I might might have been 20% fat at my fattest, you know, in the off season kind of thing and then whittle it down to like 4% for to compete or something 4 or 5%, but in, in any case, they used BMI as a marker of obesity. The team found that high body mass index, again, weight for height, was a risk factor for heart disease irrespective of the person's metabolic health. Hmm. Those who met the definition hmm. of fat but fit had a 28% increase in heart disease risk as compared with those with lower body mass index. Now, the, the end of this article... Uh, Mr. or Mrs. Tham here, the author, did point out normal body mass index is not enough, of course, to protect against heart disease. Normal weight people who are metabolically unhealthy were also very likely to develop heart disease in this study. Mm. They, they also had higher risk. And we've all seen that kind of person, right? The person who they're not hugely obese, but they, they have, they're so sedentary they lack muscle tone so badly, like you look like you could plunge your finger up to your second knuckle, you know, into their thigh, <laughs> right into their vast or, or, or their shoulder or their arm. You know, that's not cool. Like, that's probably not good either. And they, they may have a lot of these problems, right? High blood sugar, high blood triglycerides, fatty liver, low HDL, whatever. Um, yeah. So fat but fit new study suggesting that that's probably not accurate again if you're willing to overlook bmi as your criterion for who's fat so well that's been you know <clears throat> dr stephen blair that's been his kind of argument for, for going on decades now too so yeah um here's a quote to put it bluntly there is no such thing as being healthy obese according to camille lasalle an epidemiologist at um at the university that i was mentioning uh, who led the study Hmm. So. But they're also conflicting obese with, like you said, BMI and people who have a lot of muscle, too. So I think that's where it gets messy, right? Because there's also a subdivision where you could say that some people may be obese, but they're not really showing any metabolic disorders. And in that group, usually if you follow them long enough, then they tend to start showing metabolic issues later. Mm -hmm. And just so happened that you saw them sort of early in the process. Yeah, um, it's, a, it's a hopeless confusion, I think, between uh, like clinical medicine, which is like blood values, right. urine, blood, etc., and structural pathologies, you know, like you're actually carrying all this weight or your heart is stretched out because of your high blood pressure for many years or, or, or you know, kidney problems, etc. So um, anyway, you're right. It, it's a can of worms. It's hard to tease apart. And so that's what we're going to talk about after the break. We're going to talk about um, obesity, uh, carrying extra body fat, but really with a focus on muscle mass, right? Because in our listenership, certainly you're carrying dozens potentially of extra kilos of body weight around, but it, it's actually muscle mass. So how important is muscle mass to health and longevity and whatnot? So we're going to address that when we get back. Hey, listeners, this is Dr. Lonnie Lowry. If you've ever had anyone critique you uh, on your protein intake as part of your weightlifting lifestyle, oh, you poor meathead, 
all that extra protein is going to rot your kidneys or weaken your bones or dehydrate you or give you gout or who knows what. Uh, there is a book available. You could simply Google CRC Press and Lowry. And what I've done is reach out to experts all over the world and create a book, a single compendium that you can hold up and say, this is why I consume extra protein. This can be very valuable when you're um, being quote unquote educated uh, by various professionals on the topic. Uh, there's enormous amount of literature in this book on the safety, uh, the effectiveness, how protein works in cells, the history of protein and weight trainers, uh, much more. So again, please check out CRC Press and Protein and Lowry. You can just Google that. And uh, I do, full disclosure, I do make a small single digit royalty on the book. But that's not why I did it. I did it so we can all have something, uh, our particular population, uh, to both defend what we do and to inform our nutrition and our eating. Thanks. Iron Radio is, of course, primarily a podcast. But over the years, there have been technical glitches calling for backup streaming and listeners who wanted the convenience of other sources of audio content. Toward this end, Iron Radio is now simulcast and backed up on YouTube. If needed, please search Lawnman07 or Iron Radio from within YouTube. There's not much video, but if you like to listen through YouTube on a Roku or other living room device, there you go. Like your weekly fix of Iron Radio? In addition to being a popular institute on iTunes, we are also on email. Simply go to www.ironradio.org and sign up for the voluntary email. You'll get a once-per-week email, no more, that's little more than the show notes and a link to the audio. So go for it. All right, everyone, we're back. Uh, it's Lonnie and Mike, and we are talking about muscle mass. How important is muscle mass? Of course, just before the break, we were touching on a new study that was sort of debunking this idea of being fat but fit that the general population likes to sort of toss around. Now, the truth is, though, powerlifters in our sort of sub-genre, they can carry quite a bit of extra body fat, but they also have a ton of muscle mass. I mean, undeniably, high-end powerlifters have a ton of muscle mass. So how important is it to have extra muscle mass? I'm going to run down some facts, and then I'll toss around some questions with uh, Dr. Nelson. Um, first, muscle mass is important to your health, right? Uh, your muscle tissue is sort of a reservoir for amino acids. Your body has inter-organ exchange of amino acids, and your body needs amino acids and to build all kinds of proteins from, you know, the enzymes that run your, or actually are your metabolic pathways to hormones and uh, your immune function, like immunoglobulins and things like that. So the difference, though, with muscle tissue is it's sort of you're kind of using that right it's a reservoir of amino acids and, and proteins that your body can tap but it's not the same thing as like muscle glycogen like carbohydrate stores it's not the same thing as body fat uh it, it's again you're using those muscles it's, so it's like this reservoir but it's a functional reservoir um uh, another example might be that uh it's been estimated, I've seen this in multiple books and papers, but something like 70% of the carbohydrates you eat 
should, and that blood glucose, should end up in muscle tissue as glycogen. Mm. It's a healthy recipient of, of carbohydrates, you know, that sort of stuff. So uh, in a clinical setting, once your muscle mass gets so low because you've got some type of cachectic disease, right, muscle loss type of disease or something, um, people die, right? You need a certain amount of muscle tissue to be functional, uh, activities of daily living, but even metabolically, it's, it's very important. It's not just for show. Uh, uh, now, obviously, there are the, the functional aspects. I mean, Arnold Schwarzenegger used to say it's an amazing experience to walk around being bigger and stronger than everyone else. And I think that's, <laughs> our, that's our initial draw, right? Powerlifting, bodybuilding, that's, it's fun to be almost a superhero among the general populace. Um, and I, I, would, I would venture to say, right, I think we can safely say very few of our listeners have sarcopenic obesity, Right. This, it's sort of the yeah. the ultimate, you know, scary thing to me, which is muscle wasting, like with age or what have you, your muscles are shrunken down and you're still obese. So basically you're walking around your body composition is almost entirely fat. I mean, I'm exaggerating, but, you know, it way heavy on the fat, very, very little muscle. And that's got to be different from the guys who, yes, they have big bellies. They got power bellies. They're carrying a lot of fat. They might be 25 percent fat, even 30 percent fat. But they have huge deltoids and pecs and quads and glutes and lats. And so uh, what are your thoughts on that, Mike? W the importance of muscle mass. Do you think the powerlifters or the off-season bodybuilders that listen to the show, are they at any kind of the same risk that some of the, you know, Midwestern American who's just, God, I was just down in Southern Ohio. There was so much oh. morbid obesity, right? Intractable obesity. People, their abdominal wall just looks like it had given way. Guts hanging to their knees. 400 pound, huge, huge persons. And probably not a lot of muscle mass, at least on average. But So maybe you could offer some thoughts, some comparisons about, you know, the powerlifter or the off-seasoned bodybuilder who's carrying a lot of fat, but also has that important muscle mass. Yeah, I mean, just based on <clears throat> what you said, it's we know that while fat is extremely metabolically active from more of a, I'd say, a cellular communication standpoint, it doesn't really serve much of uh, how I think of maybe performance-based. I mean, unless you're you know getting like super, super lean and things of that nature. Um, so my viewpoint is looking at uh, metabolic health, primarily through metabolic flexibility. And then over the course of your life, what are sort of the main markers for mortality, right? So if we look at it and say, okay, we're going to look at mortality because it's a hard endpoint, which is kind of cruel because at the end of the time, you're either dead or alive. It's you know pretty easy to determine that. And the top ones for that are VO2 max, so kind of aerobic capacity, classic kind of quote-unquote endurance type stuff. Um, grip strength is definitely up there, and usually uh, leg strength. A lot of times the sit to standing and maybe walk type test in elderly. What's interesting to me is that those are all basically performance metrics. Um, body composition doesn't really play into that as far as I know. I'm sure at some point it does. But usually what you see is that body composition results in a detriment in terms of those performance indicators, right? So if you take a very large mammal wandering around the state fair somewhere and have them do any type of those performance tests, eh, 
odds are they're probably not going to do really well. Now you compare that to you know, bodybuilder or powerlifter, they're probably going to do pretty well. And I think you'd be surprised even on like a VO2 max how well some of those people may do. And again, there's definitely exceptions you know, to that. There's a lot of powerlifters that have a probably a horrible VO2 max. But you know, if you look at bodybuilding classically, you do a fair amount of cardio and that type of thing too. So you're not really completely pushed to one end of the spectrum. Mm-hmm. And you know, muscle, as you mentioned, is a good place to dispose of fat and carbohydrate. Yeah, just kind yeah. of metabolic flexibility. How well can you use carbs? How well can you use fat? And we know based on that, just viewing through the lens of metabolism, that as you start losing that, your dramatic risk of type 2 diabetes comes up, right? So you start losing the ability to fully use carbs. And then what happens, your body puts out more insulin that says, hey, I can figure out this problem. I'll just jack out more insulin. And what happens then is as insulin stays higher and higher and higher, starts impairing your body's ability to use fat as a fuel. So you can think of insulin as like the fuel selector switch. So I think I stole that from Jeff Bullock sometime. Mm-hmm. And the higher the insulin pushes you to use carbs, lower insulin pushes you to use fat. If your insulin levels can't ever really come down because you've got issues with carbohydrate metabolism, like a type 2 diabetic, then you actually start losing the capacity to use fat as a fuel also. So in essence, gets squished from both ends of the spectrum. And you're actually, again, losing uh, capacity. So I tend to think of it as a framework of what are the markers for mortality. And the ones that we know of now appear to be very much on the performance-based end of the spectrum. So if you're doing better on that performance end, you're probably going to be doing better overall. And we know that muscle is directly related to that and also related to different fuel usage for metabolism. Right. I, I like I, what you said about it's not just uh, carbohydrates and everyone. It, it depends on how much muscle mass you carry, but yeah. muscle tissue, let's say that an average or to a good sized guy can carry four or five hundred grams of glycogen in, in muscle tissue or muscle and liver maybe combined. But um, yeah, and then many dozens of grams of fat, you know, three or 400 grams of fat, depending again, little oil droplets within muscle fat isn't only stored in fat cells in adipocytes, you know, so having that, that place to put it in a healthy way, uh, can be good. You know, it can be good. I actually tried to tease that apart once in the lab. We, um, Mm. we got, we took some bodybuilders. We took guys who were reasonably lean. They were like uh, in the teens and percent body fat, like let's say 15% body fat. So reasonably lean, had a lot of muscle mass, they had high body mass index, and we did uh, a brutal workout with negatives, right? Eccentric exercise, mm. made them very sore, and we tried to hamper their muscles' ability to, to up, take up and store the glycogen, and we gave them a glucose tolerance test, and their blood sugars did run higher, and their, mm. their insulin was a little higher, too, because, again, the muscle was temporarily resistant. Uh, and you could find work from other people like that, too. Um, Mike Sherman, uh, Kevin Yaroszewski. There's been people. Della Guila did some um, biopsy work with uh, some of the aspects of the insulin pathways within muscle tissue. But other people have pretty well documented that sore muscles don't take up carbohydrates quite as well. Now, I don't want people not to lift, not to do negatives, and you know, because, oh, it's going to 
make my blood sugar go up and my insulin go up. And Dr. Nelson just said too much insulin all the time is bad. This is a very temporary kind of thing. Generally, people who lift weights, when you're not sore, you have actually better glucose tolerance, right? You're actually better insulin sensitivity. You have more muscle tissue, more place to put the glycogen, stuff like that. But we were trying to tease apart where it goes, right? I think it's one of those things when you start studying metabolism and you're interested in, in um, bodybuilding or powerlifting, like how do you send nutrients to the right compartment that whole, whole like nutrient partitioning idea? You know, mm -hmm. I, I want to send carbohydrates into my muscles. I, I don't want, you know, I have so, I'm so fat and I have so little muscle tissue that what does my body do with those carbohydrates? Cause I don't, I literally don't have the kilos of muscle mass to deposit, you know, the, the blood glucose into there. So what, then what happens, you know? And uh, anyway, so yeah, you start to look at the, the metabolic important. What, what about your clients, Mike? So when people come to you and I don't know what they're interested in or how you address it, but uh, do you have a personal bias or do you see a lean in what they're interested in? Like, reducing fat versus adding muscle versus just performance yeah so i would say in general most of the people i work with um even if they come to me for pure body composition i'm still always looking at their performance even if it's just performance in the gym or whatever their sport is because that's something that you can measure you know, a lot of times even session to session I don't know what you know kind of setup you're looking at and it's really hard for someone to stay motivated if their performance in the gym is always trending down because that's the thing they see kind of day in and day out mm -hmm. and going back to the capacity overall I kind of want them to be in more of an expansion instead of a contraction so I want them to be able to do more things it's also a marker for am I increasing strength yeah, maybe muscle mass, so like it's kind of messy. It's really hard to see body composition changes day to day, even sometimes week to week. Oh, yeah. So I find it from a motivational standpoint, focusing more on performance <clears throat> and then obviously looking at nutrition and diet and things of that nature. I, yeah, I mean, if you have someone who's doing a physique competition towards the end, yeah, their performance is going to degrade. But even in that case, you want to keep their performance pretty good as long as you possibly can. Um, if they've got, you know, something of a baseline status of a bod pod or even a, a weight or picture or something like that, you can get a rough idea of, you know, where they're at. You know, if and I've had this a few times, usually it's sadly more with women who, you know, body composition is not horrible, but they want to improve it. Their performance, eh, not so good because they've gone through these cycles where they've their performance has eroded. You know, just trying to be weight stable. You know, they're at twelve hundred calories or something super low. Uh, with them, I'm going to slowly try to increase more calories, probably more protein, and try to get their performance to come back up. Um, I usually look at their stress level, uh, resting heart rate, heart rate variability. Normally, that's pretty skewed off. So I don't really want to be super aggressive with them because it's just not going to end well. You know, what are you going to do, like eat 800 calories the rest of your life? You know, hey, you may lose yeah. a few pounds, but at some point you're going to plateau. And now where you plateau is a place where it's completely, utterly unsustainable. You probably are going to break down at some point 
it's hard to get more micronutrition in. You're not happy because your performance is not very good. You go to the gym and everyone else beats you all the time. You haven't got a PR in like three years. You know, it's just uh, not a fun place to be, even just from a psychological standpoint. Um, so trying to do the opposite of that. And I've, you know, I've told people that, hey, you know, we're going to have to take a period of time. We're going to have to increase your calories back up. And we're going to increase your performance. We're going to try to normalize your stress. The reality is you may gain a few pounds at that point. You know, I'm not going to let you go anything that's going to be extremely excessive, but you're probably not going to get significantly leaner at that point. There are exceptions. You know, some people you just start feeding them a little bit more and they start, you know, spontaneously moving around and feel better and everything kind of normalizes pretty fast. But at other times, it's a little bit more of a longer process. I know Lane Norton's talked a lot about reverse dieting and things of that nature, but um, I want to see them go back up to at least somewhat of a reasonable level. And I really want to see their stress kind of normalize. If I just add a whole bunch more stress to them, you know, at some point all the wheels are going to come off and they're going to be pretty rightfully upset. Yeah. Yeah, the refeeds after diets, that that concept has been around for quite a while. And I, it's, oh, good, yeah. it's good that it gets attention. Yeah, I can't even work with, especially... Uh, like female fitness competitors and stuff, you're going uh, to make them lean enough, they're going to lose their period. And so we yep. have to talk about bringing that back, you know, like you were saying, normalizing things, slowly refeeding, getting the stress uh, somewhat more normal. Um, you know, yeah. and I have a little rule with HRV that, and even now, I haven't worked with a female physique client for a while. I've got another one coming up that'll start on Monday, but, and I've worked with her in the past, so that's pretty easy. But I have kind of a little unwritten rule that they have to measure their HRV and it has to be normal for at least three months before they can even talk about doing another show. Because mm. there's this thing where, and I get it, that you've put all this time and effort into it and you do the show. And on the one hand, you know that all that accumulated stress didn't just dissolve overnight. But there's, I think, a human tendency to think that it did because the marker in your head was the show right so you figure oh all my stress is gone everything will be great and as you know it's not right yeah <laughs> it's not sometimes for weeks to sometimes months so i found by having that actual data to show okay here's where you were six months out here's where you were three months here's where you were the day of the show now we need to kind of get back in that general direction again because if we just start adding more stress to your body all of a sudden again just two months from now and that hasn't even normalized wow now you're digging this massive ditch that's going to be pretty hard to get out of and what i've noticed with a few competitors now is that they can kind of get away with it for like the first couple shows and they can do some pretty horrendous stuff to their body and they kind of generally bounce back and then the story is almost like oh, verbatim like all the same they did the same kind of silly stuff and all of a sudden their body just didn't respond you know it's almost like at the you cross that sort of inflection point where your body's like oh no oh no there's no more of this right you're not getting the same nice response you got before and it's gonna be quite a while to get it sorted out right and you know back to even the, the body composition kind of aspect of this that's one of the things i started getting really fed up with competing was they wanted you to look so emaciated you know oh, yeah. um, that i was trading hard-won muscle mass right so yep. when you were talking about being 
bummed out in the gym, like clients or even yourself, not getting a PR in three years and feeling depressed. I wasn't, I've never been that oriented, you know, as far as like yeah. performance from the bodybuilding side. It was always about how much muscle mass could I carry. And I value muscle mass even more than leanness. Like being really, really ripped is fun. I would lie if I didn't say that wasn't fun. You feel fantastic. It's so dramatic. But when it when the rubber hits the road, maybe I even have a bit of body image distortion with this, but I cannot abide losing muscle tissue. You know, I'm not that big of a person. I'm not a 280-pound dude. I can't afford just to throw away five pounds of muscle to get that last pound or couple pounds of fat off me, you know, for each pound of fat. And I was, it was contrary to bodybuilding. So just like you're talking about expansion, to me, bodybuilding or strength gain, these are about gains, you know, not about sacrificing added mass, like muscle mass, in the name of being lean. So I don't know. It just comes down to like a body composition kind of argument and what you value, I suppose. All right, so one last question. Um, we're, we're talking about the importance of muscle mass and, you know, not wanting to lose it even while dieting to make a weight class or compete in bodybuilding or what have you. But do you see something more dangerous with weight cycling like a bodybuilder or a physique competitor might do versus, let's say, a powerlifter who carries a ton of muscle mass, keeps that muscle mass all the time, but stays fatter than the competitive bodybuilder. Is weight cycling different from just weight steadiness? What do you think? Yeah, this is it's a really good question, something I've kind of gone back and forth on over the years. I'd say like 10 years ago, if you asked me, I would say, oh, weight cycling, no, not so good. And, you know, kind of look at some of the literature on yo-yo dieting and things of that nature. I've kind of changed my mind over the years. And I think, you know, a lot of it depends upon how it's done, of course. Uh, there's, you know, good ways of doing it and there's bad ways of doing it. But I think from one, the psychology standpoint, and you've talked about this in the past, of being able to control your weight, I find for long-term changes that that's by far probably the number one thing, right? So if I work with a client who's never been, you know, where they want to be for, for leanness, there's always this little voice that kind of lives in the back of their head that since they they haven't done it, they kind of unconsciously a lot of times assume that they can't do it. But if they've gotten there a couple times, you know, competitors are pretty good at doing that because that's what they do, then you feel more safe about it because you have control over it. You know what to do, you know. So for right now, I'm working on getting leaner. So I'm you know, down in terms of body weight to the lowest I've been since, I don't know, probably graduated college maybe. Um, but I knew kind of what to do and didn't do it before because I had a bunch of other stuff going on. But I wasn't hyper worried about it because I knew what I needed to do. Oh, yeah. Or I think if I didn't have that skill set, now I feel like, oh, my God, I'm I'm kind of out of control. I don't know what to do to get back to there or... You know, if I wanted to add, you know, 10 pounds or whatever, it's going to take a while, but I know what I need to do. 
So I think knowing that is super helpful. It is. I agree. And I think that from a metabolic standpoint, you could argue that having periods of, of lower calories and having periods of higher calories, I think, is good as long as your body can adequately handle them. Right. So you mentioned if we give someone I've, I've jokingly recall this, the, the two pop tart test. So if I give someone two Pop-Tarts for breakfast and they feel like they're going to crawl in a hole and take a nap a half hour later, yeah, it's not the best response that I would want, right? It's kind of like the poor man's oral glucose tolerance test. Mm -hmm. um, but if you can handle that and you can dispose of that glucose and you're doing okay, that's a positive. You know, If you can go for 19 to 24 hours fasting and not feel like you're going to gnaw your arm off or destroy a Chinese buffet, that's probably going to be a more beneficial thing. Now, people get lost when they go, oh, my God, you're telling people to eat Pop-Tarts, then you're telling them not to eat. It's like, no, those are just the extreme ends of the spectrum to right, see more acute. if you can handle it. Yeah. Right, for right. very acute periods of time. Right. Um, so I think you can expand that concept into, you know, having periods like what's classically done in sports of more of an off-season, and you've got, you know, you're kind of on-season, so to speak. And I think as long as you're doing it in an intelligent way, I think it's probably going to be okay. Uh, last comment is, I see some power lifters, and I get it, that if you're in the super heavyweight and there's just no other weight class above you, yeah, if your goal is to move the biggest load you possibly can, yeah, there may be some benefits to staying on the heavier side. Um, but there's been examples, so like uh, Zavikas for a strongman actually came down quite a bit in body weight. Uh, looks quite a bit leaner. Unfortunately, he had some issues, so his last competition wasn't so good. But it'll be interesting to see, even in a sport like that, where being bigger is, you could argue, a, a pretty big advantage with all the implements and stuff you're using. Yeah. You know, does he do just as well? How much does he lose? You could argue that as he's getting older, he's not super old by any means, but in terms of sport, he's definitely on the older side. Maybe that was probably the best thing he could do for just his pure metabolic health too yeah having tons and tons of adipose tissue there's no doubt that's going to cause inflammatory derangements you know in your yeah. metabolism it's better just if you can get rid of it i know what you're saying he has specific challenges uh with those ridiculous <laughs> tasks yeah. that they have to perform compared to the average yeah. person it, when it comes to yo-yo like you i have changed a little bit i would have said no you do a yeah. lot of really bad things with yo-yo dieting. You can sort of permanently wake up and differentiate pre-adipocytes. You know, you end up with more fully functioning, fully storing fat cells if you keep doing yeah. this. But if you look at the Office of Dietary Supplements, actually, ODS.gov, they have some interesting comments on there. And I haven't looked at it in a while. But uh, uh, that weight cycling isn't as bad as we once thought. Uh, yeah. And I think it's a population specificity issue, right? If you're talking about the frustrated, middle-aged mm -hmm. person who's starving themselves, you know, and they starve themselves down to a, a lower body weight, artificially, temporarily depressed body weight uh, and body fatness, and then they gain it all back at Krispy Kreme, and, you know, and yeah. then they do it again, and then they do it again. Over time, you know, the early data would say that you lose less body weight and body fat each part of this yo-yo cycle, and you gain back even more, you know. So you might 
you might lose 10 pounds the first time and gain back 12. You know, you lose eight pounds the second cycle, you gain back 15. You know, and then the third time you only lose four pounds and you gain back 20. And over time, it's very depressing to look at that stuff. But I think it's also important to note, yeah, that um, that kind of ignorant yo-yo dieting that you'll sometimes see studies about in the general population, that's not the same thing that physique athletes are doing to themselves. It's more of a 15 or 20 week controlled process. You know, they lose the body fat. If they're intelligent, they, they follow a refeed, you know, to get back up to a um, uh, training intake, you know, calorie intake, that kind of yep. thing. Um, so I don't think it actually applies as much. So, uh, yeah, there were, I'm sure there are people in the bodybuilding or the uh, figure fitness world who they diet badly, they refeed badly, oh, yeah. you know, and they end up screwing themselves up pretty good. So, uh, like you were saying, I think a lot of this is a population specificity thing, how you do it. Um, yeah, I, I mean, I wouldn't recommend it necessarily, but yeah, if that's the off-season, on-season thing, I can. T and we've talked about this for years on this show, but you can't just try to stay lean all the time and make muscular gains as a bodybuilder. Muscle mass is important. Muscle mass is the name of the game. And unfortunately, in some of these natural competitions, I almost see that fall away, where just getting uh, rid of body fat, these guys are, it's more like body wasting than it is bodybuilding. That's what they're judged and, on, too. That's What's who is the most lean on stage, and that's a lot of times what the main criteria is, too. Yeah, especially, yeah, the, in the natural shows, you can only be so big, you know, like, yeah. I mean, the truth is, and I might get some crap for this, I've said this in the past, but at 5'10", like an average size guy, about 200 pounds in relative shape, oh. uh, that's that's really big. Uh, yeah, and if for you're a natural guy, that's way bigger than most people realize. Yeah, oh, yeah. Like so, you're walking around in the off season at like two twenty, two thirty. You compete at like one ninety. It. I really think that's the upper echelons of what you can do uh, naturally, you know, uh, or, or quite close. But yeah. So and last comment too about overfeeding. I mean, there's some very classic studies on this. If you look at the lean body mass that's gained from that, it can be thirty and sometimes as high as fifty percent. Now, this is not for, you know, this is for 8, 12, sometimes 16 weeks. So this is not over the course of a year. And obviously, you know, glycogen and all that other stuff is kind of lumped in with lean body mass because it's not fat. Mm -hmm. um, but the first couple of times I saw that, I was kind of like, holy crap. And these are not necessarily people that were exercising either, you know. So I think, like you said, in the off season, you can make an argument that, you know, just increasing calories for the purpose of, you know, gaining, you know, more mass and even trying to divert more of that towards lean mass is, you know, definitely going to be in your advantage. Yeah. You yep. know, you've seen people who've done, you know, too many shows and have never really had an off season. You know, they kind of look the same. They do. You know, year after year. Some pretty intelligent uh, natural bodybuilder competitors now that'll take sometimes two to three years as their off season, you know, just because they're, you know, getting closer to their genetic potential. Yeah. And they know that it's going to take that long a time, you know, to add any significant amount of lean body mass and to keep it and then, you know, kind of go back down on the other end. Yeah, they're natural. I mean, you yeah. know, yeah, you yeah. can't just like Arnold used to say, you know, you need some deltoids, just, you know, slap them on like yeah. it's clay. <laughs> well, yeah, well, you know, if you're not taking Anadrol, 
yeah. <laughs> that's that's harder to do. It takes longer. a while, you know. But yeah. no, it's a good point, and uh, I think I've written about that before. You're right. Even without a weight training stimulus, when you kick up the calories and gain weight, it's not a hundred percent fat gain, right? Uh, it's it's interesting stuff. Um, so just hormones and substrates and all that sort of stuff. So I've often thought for people that are quote unquote hard gainers, you see this time and time again, is that they, they just don't eat enough, you know. And yeah. some of those oh, yeah. people, yeah, you may be pushing thirty five hundred, four thousand, maybe five thousand calories a day for a while. But I remember John Berardi saying years ago, he's like, at some point you will outeat your metabolism. <laughs> it's yeah. not gonna yep. keep increasing exponentially forever. Yeah. So. The way I, I've always said you you can only defy the laws of physics for so long, right? Or you can't yeah. defy the laws <laughs> of physics, right? This is an energy balance issue and you can tilt the scale at some point. For yep. sure. For sure. Uh, okay, well, good stuff. So there's yeah. some thoughts for everyone. Um, how important is muscle mass uh, relative to body fatness? I might actually ask uh, Ron Mendel. Mike, you know Ron. Yeah, he yeah. has some great stats. He actually teaches a course on uh, the the social implications of obesity and the different kinds oh, of obesity. And he's got great stats on uh for example, how much more dangerous it is for your health to be sedentary than it, you know, it's even more of an issue. Sedentaryism itself becomes a huge problem, I guess is what I'm saying, yes. instead of just body fatness. He has great data, and it really harkens back to this, can you be fat and fit? Uh, and again, if the fatness is sort of general pop fatness, I think he would say, no, there is no such thing as um, fat but healthy right in the general population um so he's got some interesting stuff maybe i'll have him on it'd be a fun conversation yeah because that gets into the whole subtopic of just general movement right and you can look at the, the british i think it was postal worker study and there's a bunch of very classic studies that you know compared people who had to move for a living to people when they were just starting to do kind of quote-unquote knowledge-based you know desk work and how far we've come in just the other direction of just not moving from there, which is really scary in its own way. Oh, right. I mean, yeah, when you think about muscle tissue, just contracting a muscle causes, you know, an uptake of blood glucose, you know, stuff like that because the glucose transporter is activating and all that. Yeah. 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 Big yeah. deal. That was one of the studies I did at the U of M. They had a seated versus standing desk and they had um, 24-7 glucose monitors on people. The short version of it is that people who stood up actually had better glucose management and they spontaneously actually moved around more because they were already standing. Interesting. Um, so that's pretty interesting. Actually, but. one last tidbit since this is all related, but this fall, the the new study arc that I'm undertaking is I'm actually looking at uh, diet records and dietary components, specifically stimulant things, or at least mostly you know, coffee, tea, things like that, but, and how much they affect your movement patterns. Yeah. Um, you know, so super it, it, interesting. Yeah. It'll be, it'll be fun to see like, do people who eat more carbs, do they move more or, or less or number of cups of coffee a day? Does that affect how many steps you take? You know, so it, it'll be neat to see what does drive that. Cause like you said, there's so little demand in many jobs for muscular activity. Yeah. Is there something that we can eat to influence that as well? You know, so. Yeah, just ask anyone who took the old uh, ECA stack. <laughs> oh, damn right. Uh, yeah, for sure. 
Oh, crushes your appetite, <laughs> and you just feel like you just want to run around everywhere. <laughs> right. That that'll that'll adjust your energy balance. Yep. All right, folks, uh, we're out of time, so we'll catch you next time. Yep. See you. Hey, listeners, have you seen the store at ironradio.org? There are three halls in the store, one for Phil, one for Fortress, and one for myself, Dr. Lowry, and they're thematic. So you can go into our Halls of Iron store and choose based on your goal. If you need something to learn or read or something nutritional, you can look in my store. Uh, Lonnie's store. If you want something about injury prevention uh, or competition, then take a look at Phil's Hall of Iron. And if you want something about motivation or daily training, Fortress's Hall has what you're looking for. There are some fun heroic descriptors uh, as you browse through the stores. We try to make it a little more fun than the average boring online store. And whether you're a novice lifter or someone more experienced, you can take heart that you're not wasting your time. The things that we put in each hall of iron are actually based on our own recommendations. Protein powders that we know to be good, uh, knee sleeves, wraps of some kind, things that Fortress uses in his own training. Uh, the stuff that you see, you know is good. This way you don't waste time. So check out the Iron Radio store at ironradio.org and um, let us know what you think on the forums and certainly you can request products and we will uh, screen them before they go in. So thanks for listening. Iron Radio is accepting donations. If you like what we do, the professors, the scientists, the bodybuilding show promoters, the athletes themselves in powerlifting and bodybuilding. Um, please consider making a donation or maybe buying something from the ironradio.org uh, store. Uh, we also are accepting supporting members. So for $4 a month, which is frankly less than the bank sneaks out of your account in fees, you can step up and support a form of sort of public radio for the bodybuilding and powerlifting and strength community. The Iron Radio Podcast and all of the audio on ironradio.org is for informational purposes only. If you're interested in starting a diet or exercise program, it's important to check with your physician. Also seek the help of registered dietitians, athletic trainers, and qualified exercise physiologists in order to make the progress that you need.